This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. In this series that we're starting, I want us to um, really, really um, get into the topic so that we can... I want us to really get into the topic, so I want us to do it for as long as possible so that... um, uh, so that it can enter well and everybody can be well grounded. There's no rush, praise God. It's not um it's not fellowship tenure where we have to finish before our tenure is over. Hallelujah. We have the rest of our lives to teach and to teach well. Praise God. So um I want us to take our time. I want it to be easy. Um, um as much as we are committed to scholarship, right? We have precedence in the word of God and the way God does his things. And the precedence that we have is that God always comes down to our level to meet us. Praise God. God came down to the level of the Israelites in giving them the law, so much so that God was willing to make <clears throat> provisional laws, you know, by permission. We're coming to that, but let me just um, speak freely, right? So much so that God was able, willing to give them provisional laws, laws that were not meant to always be, laws that would end up being abrogated and fulfilled in the gospel. Because God wanted to come down to their level. Praise Jesus. So in the same way, as much as we are committed to scholarship as a church, scholarship of um, the scriptures, scholarship of God's word, and scholarship of the, you know, the thoughts and the ideas and the philosophies of this world, we will also try, we are going to make sure that we try and make it as relatable as possible. So that's why I'm going to come to a very, very, um, so a very as much I'm going to come colloquially as much as possible, try to break down the words, try to explain the terms so that we can all be on the same level and so that we can all understand properly. Praise God. So um, in preparing for this message, I went to do a couple, a lot of reading. So I did some reading, I did some, you know, listening to theologians and Christian philosophers on the topic also, just to you know, just to get more um, flesh to look at it and all that and. You know, it's possible to make the topic very highfalutin and unnecessarily um, complicated, such that people will not be able to explain it to other people. Um, don't forget that we are reshaping people's values and reconciling people to God. So if we're going to do that, we must first of all be able to be relatable. And secondly, we must be able to communicate such that people can also, you know, communicate the same. Is there a problem? What happened? Has he joined back? Praise God. So it has locked everybody that is there out. What's the problem? Is the video still on? Are we still streaming? Okay. No, I've logged in. So don't worry. They can always cut it out. I've logged in so these things, two places here and there. This one can pick the audio. Is that one that can pick the audio? Praise God. Okay. Is everybody still okay? Praise God. It's fine. Don't cut it now. That's no problem. All right. Praise God. So, um, um, right. Okay. One more thing. You can spotlight this video. Click right. Click on this video. The one this plan. Spotlight it. Click spotlight, so that everybody can be seeing it. All right. Praise God. 
I apologize for the network issues. We have the Wi-Fi this thing here, and I'm wondering why. I'm wondering why it is doing this. I'm wondering why it is doing this today. Hallelujah. All right. So let's go ahead. I trust some will take care of it. So um, there's a way to make it all high for listening and all that. So we'll try to make it as relatable as possible so that people can always easily, you know, follow and um, keep up with the ideas. Praise God. Now, we are talking about the, the, the topic of the series is inerrancy, God's wrath, and allied matters. Inerrancy, God's wrath, and allied matters. Now, the topic is meant to be something that is easy for everybody to, you know, understand. The topic was crafted the way it was crafted so that it can, you know, make the point concise, as concise as possible. Praise God. But if, I'm, if I was to, you know, re, reshape the... If I was to reshape the title of the teaching, if I was to reshape the title of the teaching, I would call it something like this. How can we trust God's word? How can we trust the scriptures? And to what extent? So, all right, let me say it like this. Can we trust the scriptures? And to what extent can we trust it? That's the whole idea. Right? Can we trust the scriptures? And to what extent can we trust the scriptures? To what extent can we trust the scriptures? Hallelujah. Now, the title of the series is um, Inerrancy, God's Wrath, and Allied Matters. But if I was to make it colloquial for everybody to be able to understand, this is what I would call it. I would say, can we trust the scriptures? And how much can we trust it? Did you guys get that? That's what I would call it because that's what everything ultimately boils down to. So let me try and speak, you know, to really get everybody on the same page, right? Now, what does inerrancy mean? Inerrancy usually means um, is, is that attribute of a document whereby the document can be said to have no errors or to have no mistakes, right? Because if a document has errors, if it has mistakes, then you can't trust it. Or it also or it defines how much you can trust it. Do you guys get that? So inerrant means that it has no mistakes and it has no errors. Right? And the reason why that God's wrath part comes up is this. Let me, okay, let me just sit like this. Um, now, if, if the, the issue of inerrancy is a big deal, and the reason why the issue of inerrancy is a big deal is this. The reason why it's a big deal is that if it is God's word, if the scriptures are really God's word, if it is true that the scriptures are God's word and those words come from God, then that means that if they can contain errors, then it means that it's either God has a capacity for errors, right? or the document is not from God. If you make a claim that this document is from God, and, you know, if you make a claim that this document is from God, if you want to stay strictly with the definition of God, which means, which is that God is perfect, 
and God is the greatest, you know, is maximally great. There is no entity that can be greater than God. Then that means that the, you know, that means that it's the God cannot make mistakes. So if we say a document is from God, and the document has mistakes, then it's two things. Why that saying that God can make mistakes, which is unlikely, or the document is not from God? Since God can't make mistakes, then we will be forced to say the document is not from God. Isn't it? If the document is not from God, why should we take it seriously? Why should we take it as a guide? Why should we call it our scripture? Why is our whole faith, our faith system dependent on it? Right? So why is our whole entire faith system dependent on it if we can't trust the document, if the document is not from God? So that's why the issue of inerrancy, I feel, is almost, is not at the core of the Christian faith system, right? But is close to the core. Because the truth is this, to be, to be honest with you, theologically, or theologically and philosophically, there is a way to walk around looking at the scriptures as errant, like, right? Like, the document is something you can't trust. It is possible to believe that the Bible or the scriptures are not trustworthy and still be a Christian. There's a way to meander around it. There's a way to, you know, do legover around it. Hallelujah. Do you understand that? So that's why I won't really say it's at the core of the gospel, but it is close to it because it's also a slippery slope. The moment we can't trust the gospel or the scriptures, then we begin to get into all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of ideas that can ultimately even affect the core of the gospel. For example, um, how, how does progressive Christianity start? By the time we don't trust the scriptures, right? We, we can go down that slippery slope where ultimately we can take the scriptures as just vibes and inshallah, just a mere guide or something that just we just learn as an ancient book that we just use to get ideas. Do you guys understand that? So that's the that's the core of inerrancy, right? That's the idea of inerrancy. So, um, and this is the issue. That's why now why is why is it called inerrancy? God's wrath and allied matters. Um, if the if the document is not trustworthy, right, it also means that we cannot rely on it for um for moral things. Praise God. Okay, let me. Since we don't have a lectern, let me take advantage of this of uh, this hallelujah right so this is good praise god yeah this is better right so since um if the if the scriptures are not something that we can really trust if the gospels if the scriptures are, so, are not something that we can really trust that means that there's a way to look at the scriptures that they will not be able to be a strong moral guide for us. Right? It will not be a strong moral guide for us. And in our age and our dispensation, one of the greatest issues, one of the greatest issues that we have is the clash between um, scriptural values and modern Western values. That's the greatest clash that we have between those things, right? So everything flows. When we begin to look at the scriptures and we begin to see something is called God's wrath, right? 
the level or the amount to which we can call it God's wrath or what we can really describe that God's wrath as depends on how much we can trust the documents to be either plain or not plain. Do you guys understand me? The, the degree to which we can trust the documents will determine the degree to which we can take it at face value or not. Right? And, you know, so those are things that, you know, that's the issue. So the issue is this. That's what we are discussing. And I'm, I'm trying to break it down as much as possible. What we're discussing, what we're going to be discussing in this series is the scriptures as a document, which we call the Bible. Can we trust them? And if we can, how much can we trust them? Because that's another question. That's another issue, right? Because that's where it gets complicated and you start having different ideas. You can say you can trust it to one extent, but not to some extent. To what extent can we, dis can we trust it? Right? Can we trust it completely? Can we trust it 50%? Can we trust it only to a certain level? Those are questions and things that we really need to answer. And that's the idea of this series. So we're not going to rush it. We're going to take our time, right? And then by the time we really are done, many of the cultural issues that stem from looking at the Bible in a certain way, right, you know, are going to become very, very clear. Praise God. Right. So first of all, we have to define the terms. Inerrancy is dependent on the issue of inspiration. So we said the reason why we can, the reason why we can say document has no error or you know, the reason why we can say the scripture are inerrant is because we said it is God that it came from God through God's inspiration, so to speak. So inerrancy, we have to describe what uh, we have to describe. this you know, we've defined what inerrancy is. We need to we need to define inspiration. Okay, well, let's go a, a little bit deeper into inerrancy, right? So let's look a, a little bit deeper into inerrancy. Then we'll define what inspiration is. So first of all, in terms of inerrancy. What are the types of inerrancy or what, what are the types of errors that you can attribute to a document or to the scriptures that will make you say it is errant? Number one, is it in terms of um, factual errors? For example, um, does the scripture contain facts, empirical facts, that we have come to realize are wrong? When we see those kinds of things in the documents, does it mean that the scriptures are now errant? For example, someone in the book of um, of um, um, someone in the book of Judges in the book of Joshua said that they saw the sun stand still. We know the sun does not move. It is the earth that rotates around the sun. Like a good example that Sam was giving some days ago. Does that mean that? If the Bible can contain that so-called um, unscientific fact, that means the Bible is now errant. If it is wrong there, what else is it wrong about? The fact that we see the prophets describing the physical world as heaven above, the earth, and then hell under, does that mean that they were describing the geography, the astro, you know, the astrophysics of the world to say heaven is a physical place above the sky, and hell is in the lower layers of the earth, right? Um, what other facts? You know, that the whole world was covered by water when it rained for just 40 days, and all the animals in the whole world entered into an ark. Scientifically, is not plausible. Empirically, is not plausible. So, 
it's not possible for a lot of reasons, right? Um, how were kangaroos and koalas in the ark? If they were, why don't we see any traces of their migration from that place to Australia? How did it pass? You know, all those kinds of things. Scientific facts that are incoherent with the scriptures does that make them errant? Number two are, you know, contra contradictory facts. In the book of Second Kings, the Bible says that there were a number of horses in Solomon's table. But in the book of First Chronicles, is it First Chronicles or Second Chronicles? At First Chronicles, it said maybe 2,000, 2,000 horses. But in Second Chronicles, it said 5,000 horses. If it is wrong about those kind of contradictory facts, what else is it wrong about? Are we together? So we're going to talk about those different, all those errors one by one, right? Those are the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Facts where they contradict each other from one place to another, where you know people come up with that stuff. If those kind of mistakes are in the scriptures, does that make the Bible to be errant? The third kind of error that people can talk about that you know try to describe, say the Bible scriptures can be errant, is in terms of moral issues, right? Can can be scriptures be morally errant? Not just in terms of facts or in terms of contradiction, but in terms of morality. Those are the three kinds of errors. So when you say that a perfectly loving God called down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, that kind of genocide, in quotes, is it moral, right? Um, the so-called geno genocide of the Canaanites, is it a moral thing? A God that can do that is a moral God. Those are the three kinds of errors that we need to address. That those errors, um, we see them in the scriptures, we see them in the Bible. Does it make the Bible to become errant? Praise God. Now let's define inspiration. That's another issue. If we say the scriptures are from God, we have to really define what it means for it to be from God. So in what way are the scriptures inspired? Praise God. Let's look at the Bible's claims. Let's look at the claims of the writers of the Bible, first of all. We'll take, we'll traverse all of them, and then we'll, we'll do a kind of overview of the scriptures that talk about um, the scriptures' inspiration, and then we will now um, begin to analyze them one by one so that we can really describe what inspiration is. Hallelujah. Um, Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So Peter, Apostle Peter here is claiming inspiration of the men that carried the, of the men that prophesied in Scripture. So he talked about the prophets of Scripture. And so that's the reason why you see what he says. He says, these men did not speak by their own will. They did, they did not decide to say what they said. It was not their will that produced what they prophesied, but that the Holy Spirit carried them as they were speaking. So the Holy Spirit was carrying them. Now, this um, idea is not one 
that is um you know that is just here praise god look at luke chapter 1 verse 70 what the what's going on here with this bible Something is wrong with my Bible. Hmm. Luke chapter 1 verse 70. Um, you know, you guys know John the Baptist's father, right? When his mouth opened and he was prophesying, um, after he, you know, John the Baptist was born, look at what he says. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, from of old that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all those who hate us hallelujah did you see that so he's talking about god he says that he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets so god is the one that took over their mouth and they spoke please i want you guys to be noting this thing as we're going together be noting the import of what they are saying so that when we go back to come back to it, to look at it on a deeper level you'll be able to understand well and as we are speaking now, the implication of this statement should begin to, you know, dawn on you. Because if God is taking the mouth of people to talk, and there are errors in what he's saying, you know, there's a problem. So let's let's you know, let's let's continue. So Zachariah, a man that was not even considered an apostle, said that. Look at what Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter one. In Acts chapter 1, verse 16, look at what Apostle Peter said. Acts 1, 16, when he was speaking concerning Judas Iscariot. He says, brothers, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So the scripture, the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of Moses, of David. So the Holy Spirit was speaking, but used David's mouth. Church, I was together. Let's go on. So you see Peter confirming the same thing he said earlier here. Hallelujah. Now, uh, I'm sorry. Um, now let's look at Acts chapter 3, verse 18. He was speaking to the to the crowd, and look what he said. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So you see him talking to the crowd, and he said, But God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, insisting again that God used the mouth of the prophets. Hallelujah. And finally, first Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Let's start from verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So, the Spirit of Christ inside of them was the one indicating, was predicting, the Spirit of the Christ in them was indicating, and then they predicted. So the Spirit of Christ in the one that was the one predicting salvation that was to come. So we see the Holy Spirit speaking by the mouths of the prophets. So we see inspiration. 
the definition of inspiration is becoming clear. Hallelujah. Now, Second um, Timothy, chapter three. Second Timothy, chapter three. Look at verse. Let me read from verse fourteen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and how firmly be, that, uh, what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. And how from childhood you have, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Praise God. So you see that all scripture is breathed out by God. You know, King James Version will say it's God-breathed. Now, that term, God-breathed, that is um, um, pneumothios or pneumothiosis or something. That's the Greek word for it, pneumothiosis. It's a word that um, Apostle Paul kind of, they would say Apostle Paul coined because the word is very, in old ancient documents and all that, we don't have examples of that word. Um, being used. Can everybody join us virtually hear me? Can someone them? Okay, you can hear. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Right. So, pneumotheosis, right? It says um, that word is the word that, was, that you can't find in ancient writings that Apostle Paul probably coined for himself to really carry out, you know, you know to really explain the issue. Now, these statements God breathed can also be misunderstood. It can also mean many things, not misunderstood. It can also mean many things. Because we don't have any other contemporary examples, Paul's contemporaries using this phrase, it can be hard to tell exactly what he meant by God-breathed. This is what I mean. What does he mean by God-breathed? Or God breathe, or breathed out by God? Does he mean that every single content of these scriptures is um, written by God? That is was meant by God, and you know, is a testament to what God actually believes, or what God actually wants. Do you understand? Or to what measure? Or does He mean God breathed in the sense that divine providence brought everything about to be? Let me explain. There are three levels of inspiration that people have postulated. So let me try and explain them to you. The first um, level of, of, of inspiration is um, the dictation theory. That means that when the scriptures were being written, right, God dictated it to the writers, just like the Quran. The Quran is dictation theory, right? That means that every word like that, God was the one telling them, um, you know, um, 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 Paul, write all, Paul, say it like this, all scripture is written by that's why in the quran they don't take even the translation seriously that's what they call all those translations see a translation of the quran because the quran is the way it is arranged is god that dictated it like that for you to change even one word from the position that it was is to say that you know more than god so there's the dictation theory is that the level of inspiration was saying that everything from genesis to malachi was dictated by God. Church, all together. 
There's another theory called the accommodation theory. And the accommodation theory means that um, I'm saying all these things so that it can be really deep for you guys, so that you guys can understand, and I'll make it easy for you to understand. Accommodation theory is what John Calvin postulated. Accommodation theory is that God has thoughts, and then he came down to our level speaking through the prophets in ways that we can understand. So he didn't detect the words the way they came out. He didn't detect them word for word. The prophets spoke in their language and in the kind of expressions that they have, right? But it was God that gave them the ideas. So the ideas in those words are God's. Do you understand? But, for example, you can say, um, Sheye knows how to play the keyboard well. The idea is that Sheye is good at playing the keyboard. But you can say it in different ways. You can say it like this. Sheye knows how to play the keyboard well. You can say, Sheye excels at playing the keyboard. You can say, um, a certain Negro of the Majofodomi family, known as Oluwa Sheye, has great aptitude and skill at punching the keys of a certain stringed in instrument that has white and black keys. Hallelujah. You know, you have said many things. So, you know, John Calvin said that, the, the, you know, John Calvin even said it like this. He said that many of these prophecies were, um, they were like as if God was lisping to a child. So the same way, if I want to talk to Tetty now, and I'll say, Tetty, stop crying. And I will not tell her, Tetty, it is immoral and unethical to be crying in the presence of guests when you are being unnecessarily flippant and nonchalant. You know, I'm communicating, Tetty, stop crying. So when I'm but when I'm coming down to 30's level, I'll not say, 30, I'll send you to the naughty corner. Don't cry. It's not good. You hear? She will not like this. It's not good to cry. You hear? Say, yes. You know, say, if you don't, if you um if you stop crying like a baby, I'll give you cake. What I just narrated now happened today. Praise God. Now, you know, I've communicated that 30 should stop crying anyhow in public. But I didn't say it in English. But if I'm talking to Sam now, it's with a different English I will use. So the accommodation view is that, you know, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit came down to our level and the prophets were speaking in their own words, um, um, in their own words and in their own context and in their own expressions, the ideas that God, the Holy Spirit was moving them to say. And then there's the supervision view. And the supervision view is that God just had ideas that he wanted to have. But he inspired people to write and talk and do stuff that brought the entire document together. Because God did not really, you know, push people or give them, push them to say that thing. But his providence brought things together. He's the one that created the prophets, put them in a certain context made them to be born to a certain family. He's the one that made them be in that context where they were thinking the way they were thinking. Right? And then, so when he began to put ideas in their hearts, and they began to speak about those ideas, and he gave them visions, all the way those things came together. Right? Both, every part of the scriptures, all those things were all a result of uh, God's supervision. Hallelujah. So that's the supervision theory. Now, before I go on, I would like to ask you guys a question. You guys are in church, um, physically here. Ah, I wish, don't worry. We'll soon buy more equipment where we can really enjoy 
um, service very well. Hallelujah. Um, but in the meantime, it's only those that are here that can really enjoy us. Um, which one do you guys think is the level of inspiration? Which, which theory of inspiration do you think is responsible for the scriptures? Accommodation. Hmm. Okay. Accommodation. You think it's accommodation? Okay. Sam, what's your... Okay. Okay. Um, everybody is voting for um, accommodation theory. That's why John Calvin postulated. It was a very, it's a very good theory. Um, I'll, I'll tell you guys everything. Don't worry. I'll tell you. That's what my pastor. I'll teach you well. Um, Femi, can you hear us? I type your own theory. Emmanuel, type your own. Who else is there? It's the people I know. I will first call. If I, I want you to type your own. I want to see what your own theory is. Which theory do you support? What did Daniel say? Okay, okay. Daniel, you too. Put in your own theory. And I'm waiting for you. We're hearing you. So don't, because we're all in church together. That's why it's in Zoom, not Mixer. Okay. What does John say? Oh, yeah, yeah, Femi, Emmanuel, type, type, type. I'm waiting for you. Which theory do you guys think? Okay. Emmanuel, it's like all of you want to take accommodation theory. I'll, I'll still circle back. Maybe it's not, maybe next, next. Uh, we, we, okay, we have 20 minutes more anyway. So we'll continue next week, Wednesday. So I'll take everything. So I'm, I'm guessing that most people will think of um, accommodation theory, right? Oh, she didn't hear the question. Okay. Let's continue. Now, um, um, okay, so those are the levels of um, those are the levels of inspiration. Now, let me quickly let me end today's service with an explanation of what the scriptures are. That's another thing we need to define. We've defined inerrancy. What do you need? I'm not talking about it today, so we should you have to go and think about the variables. So that we'll continue next week, Wednesday. Um, now. I wanted to ask, um, we need to define what the scriptures are. Today, we are just defining the terms, right? Today, we are defining the terms. What are, what are the scriptures? What are the scriptures, right? And so let's, you know, let's define the scriptures. The scriptures are all the books of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Those are our scriptures as Christians. The Catholics have some other books that they consider their scriptures. Praise God. They have some other books that they consider their scriptures. Um, I think I know it often. Uh, for some reason, I didn't write it down. I know it often. So they have the book of Judith. They have First and Second Maccabees. They added some chapters to the book of Daniel. And there's a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. Praise God. The Sirach. Praise God. Those books are called the apocryphal, uh, apocryphal books. That's their own Catholic Bible. I have a copy on my phone. You guys do well to download it also. First and Second Maccabees has some really good verses, to be honest. Some really good verses. Judith also has some solid verses that you're like, wow, this is, this is good stuff. 
Praise God. Um, um, so those are the apoc apocryphal books. Now, um, those are the books that we call the scripture. And how did they come to be? How did they come to be? So because I want us to define all the terms now, so that when we are now beginning to look at inerrancy, we'll be able to understand what exactly we're talking about. So at least in the in, this, in the Bible that we have, we have some scriptures that were um, historical books. We have some that were prophetic scenes of the um, prophets of old. Are we together? So the historical books are the historical books are books like um, 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 Kings, First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Are we together? Those are historical books. Then we have books that are the prophets, Genesis, um, Genesis, Exodus. Yes. They are called prophets because they are considered the prophetic books. We can't really call them historical books as such. Like the books of the Pentateuch, they are considered prophetic because it's Moses that wrote them. They are called the land prophets together. They are considered prophetic because Moses' prophecies are inside and all that. So it's a mix of history and prophecy. Right? Then we have the New Testament books. Right, We have the gospel accounts of Jesus' time. And then we have the letters. And then we have the historical book of Acts. And then we have the letters, and then we have the Revelation, book of Revelation. So those are the scriptures. How did those books come to be? Let me stop holding all these things. How did those books come to be? Um, so that we can know, let's define what scripture is. Now, first of all, the books that we have from Genesis to Malachi are the books that the Jews call their scripture today. When Apostle Paul said, all scripture are given by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He was talking about Genesis to Malachi. Those are the scripture that, scriptures that he was talking about. Are we together? Because those were the books. When Jesus went to the synagogue, those were the books that were arranged in schools in their synagogue that they would pick from and read. Um, one of the things that will really help is that as we are proceeding, stop thinking of your Bible as one small pamphlet that you are reading, like the Quran. It's not really like that. Begin to think of it like a library, a shelf. Think of it like a shelf that has 66 books inside it. It begins to help your mind to understand better as we're proceeding. Did you guys get that? Begin to think of your Bible like a shelf. When you think of your Bible now, picture, when you think of the scriptures, picture it the way the Jews used to do it. In their synagogue, they will have a shelf. And then they will have scrolls where they will put the shelf in. So somebody will go and pick one scroll and present it to the person for Bible reading. So when the person now does the Bible reading, they will read um, the scripture and then they will put it back. Are we together? So begin to think of the Bible like that. So the books that we have now are the books that they were reading then. And they were also reading... Um, so those um, um, all those um, books of Judith, uh, Maccabees and all that were not popularly read in the Jewish synagogues. They were books that the rabbis had, you know, books that were around, but they were not usually put in the synagogues. So that is the reason why this one that we have now are the books that we just consider. Because if you go to a Jewish synagogue today, these first 37 books, am I correct? 37 books. Yes. And if I, is it 37 or 39 books? These first 39 books. Why am I glitching on this? Anyway, these first 39 books of the Old Testament are the books you will see in the synagogue. That's what Jesus read. That's what Apostle Paul was talking about when he said all scripture. So, um, we did not really have 
any issue with that. There is no real issue with that because um, we felt that as heirs of the Jewish tradition, as Christians, as heirs of the Jewish tradition, if Jesus read it, if the apostles read it, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. So when the apostle Paul, if Apostle Paul can tell the pastors, Timothy and their sons, that they should read all scripture, then we must take all scripture. Do you understand that? So that's how the Old Testament scriptures came to be part of our canon. It was initially originally written in the Hebrew, but a, a certain um, um, Hellenistic emperor, um, you know, gathered guys in Egypt in Alexandria, um, I've forgotten the year, and told like 70 Jewish rabbis to come together and to translate it into Greek. Because there were a lot of Greek-speaking Jews at the time. We're talking about after the... Um, um, what do you call it? Name Alexander the Great conquered most of the Middle East and the Mediterranean, and everywhere everybody began to speak Greek. The world became Hellenized. That's what the word Hellenized came from. So most of the world began speaking Greek by reason of um, Alexander the Great's conquest. Now, um, what that led to is that there were generations of people, just like English is today, who began to speak Greek and could not really speak Hebrew. People that could speak Hebrew were getting fewer and fewer. So that emperor, forgotten his name, all those historical facts. I'll just check it so that next week I can tell you the actual facts. He now told 70 rabbis, the story goes that he told 70 rabbis to come together. They should go separately and interpret the scriptures to Greek. And the story goes that um, when the 70 of them came back after some months or after some years with their translations of Genesis to Malachi, that what they translated was exactly the same and all that, you know, you know those kind of legends and all that. But really, it might... Who knows? Probably it happened like that. This is what Jews say about the Bible. This is the story. That's the story that is believed. But we don't know if it is exactly true. It's just a myth. But um, that's we 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 know that it was. So when it was translated to the Greek, it now became it now became called it now became called the Septuagint, right? That's what that's what we call it, the Septuagint. And so Jesus and the apostles, when they were quoting, they were quoting the Septuagint. Do you understand that? So that's why all those, okay, let's not go into all those. We're not, it's not time to start tackling the critics of the Bible. Basically, yeah. So many of the, the apostles were basically quoting the Septuagint. Do you understand that? So that's how the Old Testament came to be. And then the early church took it. And so that's why we have as early as 175 AD. A document was found called the Muratorian Fragments in 175 AD. That, um, that tells us it was found by an Italian archaeologist. And that document, when it was dated, was dated to as far back as 175 AD. Whoever wrote the book made it clear that as at that time, the books that the church considered the scriptures was Genesis to Malachi, the New Testament with the exception of Revelation, Hebrews, um, Second Peter also. I think Second Peter also. Yes, also, yeah. Three of them. Those were the books that were being read over all over the world by the church, by all the Christians all over the world. As at 175 AD, we know that as early, but when we check origin, or there's a certain um, church father called Origin, or is it Origin? Origin. Well, as far back as in as that time, we know that he they were already reading the Gospels and they were already reading Paul's letters and Peter's letters because he made it clear, right? Um, by 200 AD, there, there was a certain church father called Caius. Who also says the same thing about the Old Testament and all the New Testaments that we have today. Are we together? So from as early as possible. So this is the way it was. Um, so this is the way it was. 
um, after the, when the apostles were alive from 30 AD and they began to do ministry and all that, those guys began to write letters to people. 60 AD, Paul began to write 50, 60 AD. Um, the apostles wrote all their epistles to the people and all that. Apostle John wrote his um, his gospel account. Apostle John wrote his gospel account with Andrew, the brother of Peter, when they were in Ephesus. Sometime maybe around 70 AD or so, thereabouts. Right? And the, the Maritama Carfragan tells us how Apostle John was inspired to write his own accounts. So this was already when he was old. It was close to his end of his years. And there were many elders in the church. I don't know if you guys don't have the Maratarian Fragment. I, I think I've given Shea a copy, so you'll have read it before. Um, so the, 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 the writer tells us that what happened was that the elders began to ask Apostle John that he too should write a gospel account of what happened when Jesus was alive and everything. And then he now told them that, okay... Um, um, that is that Andrew Andrew was there too. Andrew and John were there, and then now told him that okay, that um, Andrew and go back to him and now said okay, let us all go and pray about it to be sure if that's what God wants me to do, and everything. I, oh, I think it was Andrew that said he perceived that God wanted Apostle John to write it. I'll read it again and get back to you guys. That he wanted, shall the elder shall told John that he should go and write the Bible. He now said okay that they should go and pray about it. And they went to pray and fast. After their prayer and fasting, we don't know how many days they pray and fasted. These guys took those kind of things seriously. The apostles took those things very seriously. So they prayed and fasted, and then they came back, and then they said, without, without any um, doubt, that the Holy Spirit had told all of them that Apostle John should write his own gospel account. So he did. Um, Apostle um, Luke, Luke was a biographer who was interested in knowing everything that happened in Jesus' time. So he spent a lot of time interviewing people about what happened when Jesus was alive. So he went to Jerusalem, interviewing people, traveled around the world, people that left Jerusalem, asking them their own accounts. Then he sat down and put all the things that he had, the whole documentary together. And that's how we came about the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, praise God. That's why the um, biblical scholars have analyzed all the sections of Luke, the differences in writing and the difference in perspectives. And they, they, they say that there are like three or four um, from the way he wrote, that they can tell that there are at least three or four separate interviewers, interviewees that have contributed to that book. So they call them PQR or so, PQRM or so. They just call them PQRM or something, right? So because of different perspectives that the book has and everything. So you can tell that the person talking from this perspective is talking as someone that is viewing Jesus and the apostles. You can tell that someone else is speaking from among, among the apostles and all that and all that, right? Matthew wrote his own gospel with the intention of convincing the Jews that of, you know, with the intention of convincing the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So that's why even in his own genealogy, this is the, one of the reasons why there's a difference in Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. So there's this thing that writers in the Old Testament, in the olden days used to do. And this is another problem that people have. People judge olden days writers by current standards, as if people that were writing books 2,000 years ago write with our own format of writing here them when they write they employ all kinds of things many of them when they write they don't write what's the time oh, i'm not exceeding my time okay five more minutes many of those guys when they write they don't write the way we write now when they write they usually have an aim in mind and they're writing towards that aim do you understand that? So that's why they employ a lot of tools, like biblical scholars will tell you, or you know, um, Asian writers will, scholars of Asian writings will tell you they do something called um, telescoping, something like what Plutarch does, 
or you know how, how Josephus wrote, or you know even as far back Greek writers as far back as um, the guy that wrote the Odyssey, what's his name, um, Herodotus, right? There's a way they write. You know, there's a way they write towards an end. So there's something called, they were not big on following sequence. For example, if they write a story about Sam, they will not write a story like um, what happened on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They don't do that too. They write about Monday. If there's something that concerns Monday that happened on Thursday, they will write about Thursday first to make that point before they go to Wednesday. They did a lot of stuff like that. So there was something that Matthew did. Matthew was... He wanted to lay emphasis on a certain part of Jesus, about Jesus' genealogy. And the, you know, because even those 14, 14, were not literal 14, 14, 14, same thing with Luke. Um, because the idea was, they wanted, they, Matthew wanted to emphasize certain characters of certain of Jesus' ancestors. Do you understand that? So most of Jesus' ancestors that went into the exile, Jesus, um, Matthew will skip them and all that. You know, this kind of thing. And same thing with Luke did. Luke was trying to emphasize something else. So that's why they did all those kinds of things. Anyway, that's why you notice that the way Matthew started, Matthew used, quoted the Old Testament a lot. Have you guys noticed? Go and read Matthew. He quoted the Old Testament a lot. Because Matthew's point was to show the Jews that the person that came, came because the prophets prophesied him. Luke was a Greek man. He came for me from an academic perspective. Mark wrote down what Peter, Peter's gist. So there was, it went straight to the point about what Peter, Peter told them about what happened. That's why you see Mark, the book of Mark, is written in a very direct first-person kind of contact. The, the person was there. The person was seeing everything as Jesus was saying it, you know, those kinds of things, right? And then the book of John was an old man's contemplation. A man at the end of his life is now thinking, you know, so when he's writing it, he's not writing chronologically. He's writing to emphasize ideas. So that's why he puts the cleansing of the temple in the beginning. It's not because he was, uh, he was, he was, you know, he was. It's not because let's not go into all that. We'll talk about all those things later. Hallelujah. Now, why do we have seen that Jesus and the apostles? Consider the law and the prophet. For example, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Considering that um, Jesus and the apostles considered the scriptures to be Genesis to Malachi, why do we now consider Matthew to Revelation to be um, scripture? Why do we just have our own version of the hadith, like the Muslims have the hadith, have the, hadith, the hadith, hallelujah. You know, um, why don't we have something like that? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass until all the law is been accomplished. So, Seeing that Jesus calls the scripture, they've not written any of the New Testament scriptures by that time. Seeing that Jesus called the scriptures, um, you know, the Matthew to Malachi, why do we consider the New Testament scriptures? And this is why. Because this is the tradition that we received from the apostles themselves. Read 2 Second, Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. From verse 15. 
and count the patience of our, of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other what? Scriptures. The, the, the beauty of Christian history is fantastic. Fantastic. We will read um, History of the Church Fathers and we will see there that they consider the epistles um, scriptures. And then we will now see within the epistles where they consider the epistles scriptures. As in, it's mutually corroborated. This is what I'm saying. By the time the apostles began to write um, the gospel accounts of what happened when Jesus was alive, and they began to write epistles to people inspiredly, because the entire gospel is built on the prophets and the apostles, like Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. When the apostles were writing inspiredly to people, when they were writing to people based on what Jesus has shown them, like Paul will continually tell you that this gospel is according to what Jesus has, what God revealed to me and everything, the church considers the apostles' writings to be or to us to be also scripture because they were teaching us what Jesus taught them and what the law and the prophets showed them. So they were taking from the law and the prophets, taking from how Jesus fulfilled it and giving it to us. So it was elevated to scripture such that even the apostles themselves considered their own letters scriptures. That's what Apostle Peter was saying that they twist the rest of the scriptures, they, they twist his letters as they do the rest of the scriptures. As at the time Apostle Peter was alive, most of the churches had begun to copy the letters of these apostles for themselves to read, and they were reading it in their gatherings as they were reading Genesis to Malachi. Do you understand that? So you see that story. So it's not as if, oh God, there's a lot of rubbish nonsense out there. In pop, on the popular level, in pop culture, you know, rubbish things about how the the council of uh, um, the council of you know this thing wrote the Bible and the ones that decided on canon and everything is total nonsense. Have you, for example, do you know that um, different scrolls of scriptures, fragments of the scripture of scriptures, have been found in different places all over the world at different times, both for the Old Testament and the New Testament? For example, we have the Septuagint copied. Then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have the New Testament scriptures, and then we now found some other documents, New Testament scriptures, found, was found by a good herder in Ethiopia some decades ago. When they trans translate all of them, they are exactly the same, 99% the same. Differences in words here and there and all that. Do you know why? Because the Bible, the scriptures, right, the New Testament, the Old Testament is it to understand how it was kept intact from when they wrote it, you understand, in Jewish culture. But for the epistles, this is what happened. As Apostle Peter writes a letter and sends to a church, people in the church will copy. They say, I beg, you get a copy of that first Corinthians letter. They say, I'm we get them. I beg, send them to me, I beg. They will copy them, send it. And so the same honor they had for the Old Testament was the same honor they had for those Bible scriptures. So they wrote it and sent it to each other. So you know this popular level Muslim rhetoric where they say um, the Bible that they had then is not the same Bible that they had now. It's actually a very meaningless statement. Because what would happen if it was true was that 
the Bible. And again, Christianity was not just in Jerusalem. Within five years of Jesus' death, Christianity was in most of the Greek-speaking world. Christians, Christians had formed churches in all those places. Wherever you see synagogues, they moved because of persecution. They had moved around. So you see, do you know that Apostle Paul got to um, Spain before he died? After he was in prison, the letter that he wrote to the Philippians where he said they should pray for him to be delivered, where the book of Acts ends, that he was in a house, under house imprisonment, that people were going to him and was teaching them God's word. He met um, Augustus, was it Augustus? And they freed him, acquitted him. And he even went to Spain. So the prayer, you know that prayer that he said that I believe that the supply of the Spirit have delivered, that prayer was answered, glory. And he still went to Spain before he came back and was imprisoned in Rome again before Nero killed him. Do you understand that? Do you know where Spain is in the Mediterranean from Jerusalem or from Italy? Do you know how far it is? Do you guys have a map of North Africa and the Mediterranean in your head? Try and picture it. If you don't know it, try and picture it. It will help you to really appreciate that context. So there were Christians in all those places. For example, from Indian history, pure Indian history, we know that Thomas got to India before he died. They've sainted him there and there's a whole thing around him that doesn't become a kind of Christo-Pagan religion and all that. Thomas got to India before he died. And all those churches have their own copies of the Bible and none of it is different. Do you know why? Because they're copying it to each other and giving it to each other. So this idea of um, the Bible that they had then is not the same now because there was a council of people that changed. It does not make sense because there was no one copy. There was never a time when there was only one copy of the epistles. Or there was never a time when there was only one copy of Corinthians. From day one, the book of Corinthians already had 100 copies because people don't copy them, don't send to each other. In fact, you know, that will begin to look at some things more practically. In fact, that thing is a testament to the solidness of these New Testament scriptures. Right? Because, and that is the reason why um, if you compare it to the counterpart, Quran as the counterpart, it tells you something is wrong. It tells you something is wrong. Because if it is a document, if it's a document that people can read and people can handle, it does not make sense that people will be interacting with you for 2,000 years and there will not be any issues. It does not make sense. That's why if you go a little bit into um, Islamic history, you hear the, you know the story of how the Quran was not even written in the first 250 years after, was it the first 70 years? 70 years after, it's, um, what do you call it? Muhammad died. And people just had it in their head as oral knowledge that Muhammad said this and that. And it got to a time when the um, the Isaiah, the Abbasids or so were conquering the whole of North Africa and then there was a caliph, I think it was Umar or so and it got to a point where people were quoting, even in Muhammad's time, people were already beginning to quote different Quran. There's a story of the third caliph, is it um, Abib or so, I've forgotten all those Arabic names. He was in the Quran, he was in the mosque one day and the person, the imam, one of one young boy that was doing imam was reading, was leading the prayer and was quoting a portion of the Quran and he quoted it and he quoted it wrongly and the, the person that became, I think, the third or fourth caliph was waiting for him. He wanted to even beat him inside him. He said, that's what the hadith said, that he wanted to stand up and beat him as they were praying. But he held himself because of respect for, for Quran, for prayer. And I, immediately they were done praying, right? He dragged the guy by his shirt and said, you are leading us with prayer, you are quoting, quoting the wrong Quran and dragged him, Muhammad was alive, and dragged him to go and meet the Prophet, and then when they dragged him to go and meet the Prophet, the Prophet now said, eh, you quote your own 
you quoted it. Say you quote your own, it was different. Say both of you are correct. <laughs> I'm not joking. It's in the hadith. No jokes. I think it's the Sahih Buhari. Sahih, I think it's the Sahih Buhari or something. You know, Sahih Buhari. I just I know that. So you can imagine, 70 years after, there was a war that they were having and they were telling the people. So there were some guys that were the quotas, the crammers of Quran. That's one thing about those guys. They were good. They had good memory. Very good memory. That's why even Arabic writing actually started very late. Arabic writing started probably like 600 AD or something because they were very good at writing. At cramming, very good at cramming, right? So, and then they will, they will go to war, and all the guys that are the crammers of the Quran, they will kill all of them in war. So, you know, one of the caliphs that they had now called all of them together and now said, you know what, we have to unify this thing and all that. So he took one particular, one particular, you know, translation of the Quran, and then he documented it and said, this is the Quran that we're going to be using from now on. And you know what he did? He now that by that time they had conquered Egypt. And then, you know, he now did. They now wrote to him and now said, no more. There are plenty of books in the library of Alexandria. What are we going to do with it? Do you know what he said? He said, if any book is the same as the Quran, then there's no, there's no need for it because there's no need to have two Qurans. The original is good enough for us. And if any book is different from the Quran, it cannot be the truth because we know the Quran is the only true book. Therefore, born everything. So they took the entire library of Alexandria and they burnt it. History tells us that the fire from the books was used to warm the public baths for four months. Even then, there was a certain man, I've forgotten his name. He was alive then and he was protesting that Quran because he said there were things that were written in that Quran that were not what he heard from the prophets. Church, are we together? So you can see the histories are not the same. The histories are not the same. Right? The histories are not the same. So from day one, the scriptures had been, had been copied and transversed to every Christian all over the world and all that, such that till some, sometimes when you are saying, when they do new archaeology, fresh archaeology, today, they will still find scrolls in some places in Ethiopia or Egypt or something, and when they see the, the first Corinthians in the paper, in the parchment, it's the same as our own first Corinthians because the Christians then copied it for each other. Church, are we together? So the, the Bible has not changed at all. So now, the issues of asterisks, inverted verses, inverted phrases, and all that, these are all the things that we're going to talk about in this series. Praise God. So what have we achieved today? We've defined inerrancy, right? And the kind of things that they can use to call the scriptures inerrant, three things, right? The first one is what? Factual errors. The two are what? Contradictory. Uh -huh. And the third one is what? Moral errors. Very good. Excellent. Right? Um, we, we talked about inspiration and we talked about what are the three levels of inspiration? Dictation, right? Accommodation and what? Supervisory. Hallelujah. So, and then we also describe what the scriptures are and how they came about to be. 